Welcome to In Conversation, a monthly podcast that takes a deeper look into everything we're working on here at Long Road. Tune in to hear more from our contributors, editors, and experts who are part of the journalism we publish and the stories we tell. I'm Faranisa Campana, and this week we'll hear from Sarah Suli, a journalist covering politics, people, and post-conflict. Based in Marseille, Sarah is a freelance journalist who spent several years in Greece and Tunisia. Her work has appeared in The Economist, Vice Magazine, and The Guardian, among others. Her journalism has been supported by Fabrica, the International Women's Media Fund, and the Stavros Niarchos Foundation's Incubator for Media Education and Development. She's also the author of a long-form story about a triple murder of three Afghan asylum seekers, published in the Atavist magazine. At the outset, Sarah had little information about the three people slain on the Greek-Turkish land border. She didn't yet know where they were from, nor did she know that they were women. But three and a half years later, in November 2022, the Atavist published her deeply researched story of the murders. Death wasn't uncommon in Evros. Over the years, many have died crossing the border, an area that includes a closed military zone. But, as she writes, murder, though, is a different matter. Her story is titled A Matter of Honor, and it is one that travels from Greece to Turkey to Afghanistan. It examines the events that led a mother, Fahima, and her two daughters, Rabia and Farzana, to Evros. Since its publication, A Matter of Hope has won several awards, including from the Overseas Press Club and the American Society of Journalists and Authors. It was also a finalist for the Livingston Awards and an honorable mention in the One World Media Awards Popular Feature category. Recently, Sarah and I spoke about her work reporting on migration and the years of labor that went into A Matter of Honor. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to In Conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I think we can jump right in. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me and uh, and for your interest in in this story. I wanted to first start out with asking you to talk a little bit about the work that you do and the stories that you aim to tell. I have been working as a freelance journalist. I'm going to date myself for the past decade, um, which feels kind of insane. Um, and I've been living and working in Greece since 2017. Um, and when I first got here, I started reporting on migration rights and refugee rights. Um, and there was a lot of attention and focus on the Mediterranean, obviously, and the sea passages that people were taking. Um, but there was less attention that was being paid at the time to Evros, which is the land border between um, Greece and Turkey. And I started doing a lot of reporting up there um, and specifically starting to report on pushbacks. Um, so I guess in terms of the work that I do in Greece, that has been my focus for the last few years. Getting to your piece called A Matter of Honor. The Evros region is a place that experiences constant tragedy, um, much of which goes entirely undocumented. What is it that drew you specifically in this instance to the tragedies that befell these three women? And on a more practical level, 
How did you find this story and why did you think that it needed to be told? Yeah, so like I like I said, uh, I had already been doing a lot of reporting up in Evros on pushbacks, um, which now have been pretty thoroughly, I guess I should say alleged pushbacks, <laughs> quote unquote, because the government routinely denies that they engage in pushbacks. Um, but at this point, it's been like pretty much debunked, like they do happen. Um, but at the time, there was very little reporting that was being done on that. So I was up in Evros and, you know, I have all of my contacts up there, both in terms of people who work kind of in the um, uh, detention centers up there with people uh, who live in the villages and actually, you know, see migrants crossing. Um, and I was up there for a reportage and I was talking to one of my contacts and he goes, hey, did you hear about these three people? Uh, I'm not even sure he knew that they were women who were murdered on the border like last week. I was like, no, what's like, what's that about? He's like, yeah, I think, uh, he's like, you know, we we all think that it's ISIS that, that did this. And I was like, okay, I was like, I don't think it's ISIS, but you know, a murder is not something that happens often. Um, so the border crossing between Greece and Turkey is obviously extremely fraught with difficulty and there is a lot of death, I think, Something like in the last five years, over 200 migrants, refugees and asylum seekers have died crossing the border. But most of those people die from hypothermia. They drown in the river, which uh, is the biggest sort of like natural separation between the two countries. Um, and there have, I think in 2020, um, the Greek military allegedly shot um, a few refugees trying, trying to cross. But murder is not something that happens. And I went to go see Pavlos Pavlidis, who's the forensic scientist um, on in, in Alexandrupoli. And he's essentially the only person who's responsible for identifying bodies. So I knew that the bodies had gone to him. And I went and just did sort of an informal interview. And he was like, yeah, we haven't had a murder in this region for over 20 years. So obviously, as a journalist, that super piqued my, my interest. Um, and I also just felt a gross sense of injustice. Um, these were three women, a mother and her two teenage daughters who at the time, no one even knew where they were from. Uh, but obviously they were from a third country. They were obviously asylum seekers. And so I knew that they had left searching for a better life. And it just seemed insanely cruel that they had managed to get a few meters into the supposed safety of Europe, especially as women, and their lives were cut short in such a brutal way. Um, and there was also very little mainstream reporting that was being done on it. I think there was one little blurb in either Reuters or BBC, um, and that was essentially it. And there was no follow up. A year later, there was an article in Vice Greece, um, but there was no like deep and thorough investigation. Uh, and so I yeah decided to to take the project on myself and then spent three and a half years reporting on it in Greece, Turkey, and these women turned out were from Afghanistan, so in Afghanistan as well. Before we move on, can you describe what Evros is like for people crossing through it? Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing about Greece and Turkey, they have a really historic relationship. Uh, Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire for 400 years, um, and there have historically always been a lot of 
Turkish people or people of Turkish or Muslim origin in Greece and a lot of Greeks or people of Orthodox Christian origin in Turkey. And there was a huge population transfer, I think the biggest of its kind ever, um, I think in 1922, although or somewhere around that time. And a lot of people crossed over from Evros. So it's historically always been like a big migration point. Um, and the border has been militarized for a very long time. So actually up until 2009, the number one cause of death for people crossing was getting blown up by landmines because the whole area was still like riddled with landmines on, on the Greek side. Um, so it's a extremely militarized border and they've gotten funding from the EU. Frontex is there. Um, I think there's something like 10 or 15,000 police, Greek police officers that are on the border. Um, and I think there's sort of this misconception that because it's a river and you can see the other side, like when you're standing in Turkey, you can see Greece and vice versa, um, that it's somehow safer than the sea. And in some instances it is, but it's also still an extremely fraught and dangerous journey. So people first have to, you know, get their way through the Turkish side, which is also a military zone. And sometimes they face a lot of harassment on the Turkish side. Then they have to cross the river, um, which they do so in boats, but it's the same thing as the Mediterranean Sea. They're pretty crappy boats. Um, people often fall out. They drown. I think the river has particular currents um, and it has a very muddy bottom as well. So it's easy to get sort of dragged down and stay there. And then one issue is that for people who do die in the river, uh, obviously it's fresh water. So there's no salt to preserve the bodies, which causes a huge problem later on in terms of identification, um, as opposed to bodies that are found in the sea where the salt sort of helps to preserve them. And then once they, if they manage to cross the river, they're sort of greeted by, you know, this extreme military presence um, of the Greek side. Uh, and, you know, they come across um, soldiers or police officers um, who engage in illegal pushbacks of basically not allowing people to register as asylum seekers and have their cases um, scrutinized. They just immediately send them back to Turkey. And people cross and they try and get as quickly out of Evros as possible, um, which means that, you know, their smugglers are usually organizing the journeys uh, and they end up taking cars or walking to Thessaloniki, which is the closest big city. Um, and one sort of very unfortunate byproduct of all of this is that smugglers often use very inexperienced drivers. Um, and so there are a ton of car accidents, of course, because these are young, inexperienced people um, who are driving in a very stressful situation. Um, and so a lot of people die as well in, in car accidents. Given that the Evros region includes a closed military zone on both sides of the border, how difficult is it to get information and to find people and sources who know things about this place and who will talk? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously the police are not going to talk to you, especially up in Evros. Um, I guess one lucky thing about this particular story that I was working on is because it was a murder that happened on Greek soil um, and it was such sort of a confusing situation. So it was a mother and her two daughters who were found without any identifying documents. They had their throats slit. And so the case was given to um, 
this pretty high-ranking, actually the highest-ranking female police officer at the time, Zaharula Tsirigotis. And when she came up to the scene, she brought the case uh, immediately to the anti-terrorism department in in Athens, not because she thought it was a case of terrorism, but because the anti-terrorism unit in the Hellenic police just sort of have the most um, the most advanced technology to, you know, even they found a cell phone on the mother's body to extract metadata, this sort of thing. So the police in Evros, yeah, are never going to talk to you. <laughs> Maybe I've had luck sometimes finding one rogue police officer in a coffee shop and managing to get a little bit of information. But on this case, it just wasn't in their jurisdiction anymore. Um, I was lucky. I, lucky is maybe not the word, but Tsirigotis was actually removed from her post when New Democracy came to power. So it was very easy to do interviews with her because you know she didn't have to go through her supervisor. She was able to, without impunity, give me all of the information about the case um, because she was no longer with the Hellenic police force. And then it was quite difficult to get um, interviews with the new police officers who were in charge of the case and the anti-terrorism unit, but I did manage to do that. But I would say my biggest source of information were from refugees themselves and or like human traffickers. Um, and that I had, I did all that reporting in Istanbul in the Zeytinburnu neighborhood, which is sort of an Afghan enclave in Istanbul. Um, and People there who are not, uh, let's say, like officially part of the system, obviously very intimately know that area because, you know, they're the ones who are either trying to cross it or who have been, you know, handling uh, groups like transferring groups of people across the border for, you know, years or or decades. Um, so I would say... I sort of ironically like the easiest way to find information about Evros is outside of Evros. Can you talk about the extreme risk that people are put in, both on the Turkish side and on the Greece side of the Evros border, and how this leads to this type of tragedy, like the triple femicide, that is virtually unknown because these things happen so often, far from anyone's eyes and from any potential witnesses? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say first, like, femicides happen everywhere in the world. Um, and I, I I don't think it's something that's unique just because of the military situation between Greece and Turkey in Evros. I think it's a really unfortunate reality of the patriarchal systems that we live in. Um, and one thing, you know, that drew me to this story was the fact that in Greece, um, there have been quite a number of femicides that have gotten a lot of attention as they should, um, but these women were not given the same level of attention. But I do think there's something to be said for what really intrigued me about this story and the question that I kept coming up against is, why would these women who, you know, it turns out were murdered by their their trafficker, um, why would they be murdered in Greece? Because I think the thing no one really likes to talk about is that human trafficking is a business and like every other business, right? you protect your product. And in this instance, like the people that you're smuggling are your product. So you're not going to murder them. You're going to, even if they can't pay, you're going to, you know, extort them for money or kidnap them and, you know, you know, demand a ransom from their family back home or something like this. So I think what I kind of understood as I was reporting this story was the 
kind of hidden or secretive nature of Evros and the fact that if you're a migrant crossing, like there's no way the Greek police is going to help you and there's no way the Turkish police is going to help you. Um, and that level of, um, I don't know, kind of, it's sort of like this strange impunity kind of, this sort of gray zone where crime can happen makes it easier for something like this sort of femicide to happen because it didn't happen in Istanbul where, you know, Turkey is essentially a police state, especially in Istanbul, especially refugees. Um, you know, they don't, there isn't a lot of freedom for them. Um, their movements are tracked in all of this. Uh, and sort of the same thing in Greece as well. You started this investigation before COVID hit. How did the pandemic affect your investigation and your reporting plan? And what were some other obstacles that you encountered while pursuing the story? Oh, yeah. I mean, this story was almost like a black comedy of obstacles. Um, and I had gotten uh, funding from the Incubator for Media Education and Development here in Athens. And I remember I was supposed to go to Afghanistan in like April 2020. <laughs> um, and I remember meeting with my grant manager and being like, oh, what's this COVID thing? He was like, well, don't worry, Sarah. Like, you know, in two weeks, it's going to clear up and then you can go to Afghanistan. And I was like, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> of course, we didn't like know anything at the time. Um, and it became clear, obviously, that COVID wasn't going anywhere, that we were in lockdown. Um, but I couldn't just kind of abandon the story. So I had to pivot. And I was supposed to go to Afghanistan, um, to Mazari Sharif, which is the region uh, in the north, uh, just across the border from Uzbekistan, where this family was originally from, um, to sort of understand what information I could find from there. And I, yeah, I had to pivot completely. So I had my fixer, who's this amazing journalist in her own right. Um, and she was going to be sort of, you know, my translator and my companion on this trip. But I had to do the reporting essentially through her. So I sent her kind of in my place to Mazari Sharif. And we were basically just on WhatsApp video for like 10 hours a day for I think like a week or two weeks. Um, and it was really intense because, you know, the family back in Mazari Sharif didn't know that their sister and nieces were murdered. So this was information that I had to share over WhatsApp video, which you know, makes you feel really like a piece of shit, actually, um, because you want to be there physically. If you are going to give that sort of information, you want to be there physically in front of the other person, you know, and to have that sort of human connection. Um, so that was certainly like the biggest, big, well, one of the biggest obstacles. And then I think the reporting that I did in Istanbul was also extremely frustrating up to the point where it was almost cinematic. <laughs> What happened, because um, I basically did, what is it called, like shoe leather reporting, where you just like, like really old school, because um, I had just one contact of an individual who knew these women from Istanbul, and I spent a week, I don't know how many people I talked to, maybe like 500, 600 people, yeah. just like showing this photo of this mother and her two daughters to everyone, um, and it not going anywhere until I finally, really, I was like, the 11th hour, I was taking my flight the next day. I was so defeated. I'm with my colleague at the time, um, who is an Afghan journalist as well. 
and uh, we go into this ice cream shop. He's like, Sara, like let's have one ice cream and just like pick the mood back up. And so we go back, we go into this ice cream, Afghan ice cream shop. He's like, let's ask one more person. I'm like, oh, fine. You know, like totally after a week of asking everyone, I'm like this, how could I ever think that, you know, I was going to solve this or get anywhere with this story. This is ridiculous. And we show this photo to one guy and he goes, oh yeah, I know these people. And yeah, so th- so that I think the reporting in Afghanistan and the reporting in Istanbul were sort of the two biggest obstacles. And and also just having patience, like knowing that this wasn't something that was going to be solved anytime soon. And I would have to, yeah, motivate myself to stick with it for, I mean, I thought it would be months and it ended up being three and a half years. I want to talk a little bit about the mental health aspect of doing this type of story. There are some incredibly detailed scenes and reporting in this piece. In one scene, you describe how two of the women were found on their knees face down, and a third, the mother, was sprawled out as if she had tried to flee. In another scene, you talk about how Pavlidis doesn't think about what the dead were like when they were alive or what their last moments were. How did this kind of deep reporting on such a tragic event affect you? And what were some of the things that you did in order to be able to deal with this? I think it became very clear to me early on. It's like, oh, I'm not a detective or a private investigator or a police officer. I don't really have like the emotional tools to deal with this. Um, so I did start going to therapy, which was helpful um, just in terms of managing my like emotions and feelings about all of this i think to be honest though like it's something that i'm still dealing with um because it's not normal for women to be murdered it's not normal and i say women but really it's like you know one of the girls she was 13 the other one was 17 it's like two babies and their mom and it's not normal for them to be to be murdered and for their lives to be cut short like that it's not normal that it wasn't properly uh, investigated and solved by the Greek and Turkish police. It's not normal that there's just some like random journalist who comes along and starts, you know, investigating this story. Um, Yeah, so I feel a lot of a lot of mixed emotions about it. Certainly there's a lot of guilt um, as well. And I think maybe this is something that some journalists grapple with as well. When you work on a story like this and it gets a lot of attention or recognition and you think like, wow, I'm I'm getting awarded for someone else's misery and how like there's nothing there's nothing just about that either. Um, so I don't really have a straight answer. I think journalism, yeah, is something necessary in democratic societies, but I think it's also a much more like layered and emotionally complicated situation than maybe we would like to even admit to ourselves. I mean, I think I've been in this industry long enough and, you know, I don't do war reporting um, or even that much conflict. I would say I'm more like post-conflict reporting and I'm more interested in how people deal with the aftermath of conflict. But I mean, I see a lot of my colleagues who work on stories like this or much more hardcore. um, And yeah, there's a lot of mental and physical unwellness. Uh, You know, there's a lot of like abuse of drugs or alcohol or sex to kind of these coping mechanisms to deal with the amount of tragedy 
that we see because at the end of the day, it's quite voyeuristic. You know, it's not our lives. It's not our trauma. We're reporting on other people's trauma. And I think that can create sort of a strange survivor's guilt as well. But we're also putting ourselves at a, as like with our own agency into these situations. And I think it's I think it's good also to feel that, you know, because at the end of the day, it reminds you to like what's separating me from someone in this situation is truly just the dumb luck of my birth and, and my citizenship and, yeah. and my passport. And the thing that I just always kept saying to myself whenever I would start to feel really guilty about working on this story was like, well, I would want someone to do the same for me. Like if I was found murdered on a border and because of the color of my skin or my ethnicity or my gender, that just meant that sort of the institutionalized structures that are supposed to look after me don't, I would want someone to do this for me. These women are three tragic examples of how easy it is to die or disappear along the Evros border, virtually without a trace. Had you not looked into their deaths, these women might have remained unidentified and justice unattained. In the piece you wrote, one factor working against the investigation was general disinterest in the victims. Do you think that this story moved the needle at all, that anything has changed, and that people have started caring about what happens on their borders? Well, I guess I should say that, like, there are these, like, leftist feminist groups in Athens, or not just in Athens, I would say across Greece, who um, have historically been very mobilized against femicides in Greece, especially over the last few years. And there were some individuals within this community who started, like, taking this very seriously because I think intersectional feminism is something that's a bit new in Greece because migration Greece is not a country that colonized other countries so it doesn't have necessarily the same history of migration aside I would say maybe with Albania um, that countries like France or the UK or, or Italy does where there's like you know a long history of people from other countries living there in Greece it's been a bit a bit different so I think this concept of intersectional feminism is something that this case brought to light and that's been cool to see that like the feminist groups in Greece are mobilizing themselves to, you know, support much more refugees and migrants and just generally non, non-Greek women. That was Sarah Suli speaking with me, Long Road editor, Faranisa Campana, about her work and about a matter of honor. That's it for this week's In Conversation, where we take a deeper look into the stories we publish. Music by epidemicsound.com.